This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to the third episode of our To Fellow and Beyond podcast series. As global pandemic recovery begins, we look at some of the key steps that businesses face as they roll out their return to work plans. In this episode, Emma Bartlett, Amelia Goodwin and Sophie Lockwood will address frequently asked questions around redundancies during furlough as some businesses take these steps towards restructuring in the wake of COVID-19. Thanks, Chantelle. My name is Emma Bartlett and I'm a partner in our employment team. And I'm joined today by my colleagues, Sophie Lockwood and Amelia Goodwin, associates in our team. While the purpose of the government's job retention scheme is principally to allow employers to pause due to the impact of COVID-19, many employers are still having to right-size their business as they respond to diminished requirements for their business and in some circumstances, site closures. Amelia and Sophie will look at frequently asked questions on this topic today. This podcast is not intended to provide a brief on how to undertake a fair redundancy process. It is, however, worth reminding ourselves at the outset of the circumstances that give rise to a redundancy situation for statutory purposes. And this is where either the role is disappearing or there is a place of work closure or where there is a diminished requirement for the services or goods provided by the employer. In these circumstances, employees will be entitled to a warning of redundancy and consultation prior to any provisional decision to dismiss them as redundant is taken. An employee with a minimum of two years continuous service is entitled to a fair dismissal. A fair dismissal requires the employer to have a fair reason to dismiss, which redundancy is, but also to follow a fair process in relation to that reason. An employee with two years service or more is going to be entitled to a statutory redundancy payment on being made redundant, in addition to any other contractual or statutory payments due to them on termination. Turning to the issue of redundancy and furlough, Amelia, one of the burning questions that we've had is whether employees on furlough can actually be made redundant. What are your thoughts? Yes, they can. So whilst the purpose of the scheme is primarily to retain jobs, employers can still make redundancies where it's necessary for them to do so. And whilst on furlough, an employee shouldn't be undertaking any work. So does consultation amount to any work? So the issue isn't specifically addressed in the government guidance or the Treasury directions, but it seems unlikely that a consultation exercise could amount to work because it's not an activity which makes money for or provides services to an employer. We therefore believe that neither individual or collective consultation would break furlough. The guidance is clear that furloughed employees may work as union or non-union reps, as long as they do not provide services or generate revenue for the employer. So acting as an employer representative for collective consultation purposes should also not break furlough. So during consultation period, Sophie, can furlough grants be used to pay wages during the consultation period? So the government guidance indicates that furlough grants can't be used to pay redundancy payments. They can, however, be used to pay the employee's earnings during the consultation period. The position in relation to notice pay is a little less clear and we'll come on to that shortly. There are two types of consultation for redundancy, depending on how many employees are at risk. Sophie, can you comment on the practicalities of dealing with collective consultation? The fact that an employer may be forced to close or condense its business due to COVID-19 won't remove the need to collectively consult if 20 or more redundancies are being proposed at one establishment within a period of 90 days or less. It's well established that insolvency doesn't, of itself, relieve employers from the obligation to collectively consult. Collective consultation must, of course, begin in good time and at least 45 days before the first dismissal takes effect 
if the employer is proposing to dismiss 100 or more employees, or 30 days if it's proposing that between 20 and 99 employees will be dismissed, unless there are special circumstances, which is something that Amelia will explore in a little more detail. It's worth highlighting that collective consultation obligations might also be engaged where an employer is proposing variation to terms and conditions of employment, a common variation at the moment being salary reductions, for example. And the alternative to such variation being agreed by affected employees is redundancy. Collective consultation obligations bite when 20 or more redundancies are proposed rather than affected within a period of 90 days or less. So employers ought to be alive to this. It's also important to note that the obligation is to collectively consult with appropriate representatives. These will be representatives of a recognised trade union or, if there isn't one, directly elected representatives for the purposes of the redundancy exercise. Alternatively, it can be a standing body of elected or appointed representatives not specifically elected for the purpose of the redundancy consultation. But this last category does need to be treated with some caution as the employer needs to be able to show that the standing body of representatives has authority to be consulted with in relation to redundancies, having regard to the purposes for and the method by which they are appointed or elected. In normal circumstances, this can be tricky. In the current situation, where of course holding elections can be more difficult, a tribunal may be more sympathetic to such an approach, provided, of course, that the body represents all relevant employees. That said, given the risk of the protective award, in most cases, it's likely to be preferable to elect reps specifically for the purpose of redundancy consultation, where there isn't a recognised trade union. Of course, the current climate does present some practical difficulties with the collective consultation process. For instance, employers will need to think carefully about how they carry out elections and consider using tools such as SurveyMonkey for that purpose. There's also a question as to whether, on a practical level, Virtual meetings constitute suitable access so as to meet consultation requirements. This could be trickier in industries with lots of staff for whom English isn't their first language or with staff who have limited internet access. I think it's difficult to assess how tribunals will look at this and how much wiggle room they'll give employers. Presumably, a lot will depend upon the individual circumstances and how much thought and effort has gone into it on the part of the employer. Thanks, Sophie. If an employer is unable to fully comply with the collective consultation obligations, what special circumstances might the employer be able to rely on by way of a defence? Amelia, do you have any thoughts? Yes, so there's a defence known as special circumstances defence, and this is open to employers who have failed to comply fully with the obligations under Section 188 of the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act. The defence is a limited one, though, as it does not apply to all of the obligations under Section 188, and nor does it necessarily remove those obligations entirely. The defence is available where there are special circumstances which render it not reasonably practicable for an employer to comply with a requirement to begin consultation in good time and within the applicable minimum period, consult about ways of avoiding or reducing the dismissals and mitigating their consequences, or to disclose information to the appropriate representatives for the purpose of collective consultation. Where there are special circumstances, the employer only needs to take such steps towards compliance with that requirement as a reasonably practicable in the circumstances. There is, however, no statutory definition of what special circumstances are, but it must be something exceptional, out of the ordinary or uncommon. Whilst the current pandemic is out of the ordinary, the job retention schemes given employers breathing space in financial terms, arguably allowing for consultation. Also, the pandemic has a global reach and has affected a significant number of employers. It could therefore be argued that it's not uncommon. It may therefore be difficult to argue that a fair and procedurally correct consultation was not reasonably practicable due to the pandemic alone. 
It's a high threshold to meet, therefore, to be able to use the defence. For instance, case law has held that insolvency of itself is not a special circumstance, as it can apply to all employers. However, imminent threat of insolvency has been held to be a mitigating factor when calculating the amount for a protective award for a failure to consult. Often companies will want to keep the prospect of redundancies confidential and may be reluctant to consult for this reason. Again, this alone is unlikely to amount to a special circumstance unless there are peculiar circumstances. Thanks, Amelia. For the purpose of this podcast, we're looking at frequently asked questions concerning failure and redundancy, and this is not intended to be a guidance on how to conduct a fair redundancy procedure. It is worth noting that irrespective of whether collective consultation is necessary, due to the number of employees at risk, the employer will have to also undertake individual consultation as well with all that that it entails. I'd now like to ask what the impact of giving notice during furlough might be. So the employee guidance specifically states that your employer can still make you redundant while you're on furlough. This implies that an employee on furlough can be put on notice and remain on the furlough scheme. This is not, however, set out in terms and is not in keeping with the purpose of the scheme, which is designed to protect jobs. Also, as we are all too aware, the guidance may change at any time. Despite it not being in keeping with the purpose of the scheme, there is nothing currently in the government guidance or the eligibility requirements, which says that you must not be under notice of termination in order to be eligible for furlough, which clearly should be the case if it prevents payment under the scheme. So what is the level of pay during notice? Do we have any guidance on that? So this is an area which is unclear currently. The government guidance states that grants cannot be used to substitute redundancy payments. However, it is not clear what the scope of redundancy payments is. For instance, whether this includes statutory redundancy pay or contractual redundancy pay only, or whether it also includes notice pay related to a redundancy. The third Treasury direction released on 25th of June states that integral to the purpose of the scheme is that amounts paid to an employer pursuant to a claim are used by the employer to continue the employment of employees. This is the first time that continued employment has been specifically set out as a purpose and could be interpreted as meaning that when an employee is under notice, their employer cannot claim under the scheme for their notice pay as there is no intention to continue employment. Commentary on this is currently divided, as many see this potential change as being introduced too late to be fair to employers. Without clearer guidance, we cannot form a definitive view. In the short term, employers may be able to continue to claim in good faith under the scheme in respect of notice periods as the position is unclear. If, however, HMRC subsequently determines that serving notice ends entitlement to the grant, then any monies received in respect of notice periods may need to be repaid to HMRC. If furlough and notice are compatible, we believe that notice pay should be paid at the furlough rate, provided there has been agreement to reduce employees' pay. If the length of notice runs beyond the period of the scheme, then the remainder of the notice should be at full pay, unless any agreed pay reduction was permanent. Employers should, however, be mindful of Section 88 of the Employment Rights Act, which provides for normal pay during notice in certain circumstances. For instance, if the net period of notice required under the contract is either statutory notice or no more than a week more than is required by statute, normal pay needs to be paid during notice, provided the employee is willing and able to work and the employer has instructed them not to. This would therefore be the pre-fairlay amount unless any agreed pay reduction is permanent. If the guidance is amended to state that notice 
ends fairly, then full pay should be paid during notice, again, unless there has been any permanent agreement to reduce pay. In practice, if the grant is used to pay notice, and this is subsequently found to be the wrong amount, or the guidance subsequently makes clear that once notice is served, furlough is ended, is any employer really worse off? The reality is that they're probably not, although there is, of course, a potential breach of contract if it's later found that full pay should have been paid and not the reduced pay. It should not, however, impact on the fairness of the dismissal. Employers should therefore be aware of the risk of having to make increased payments at a later date. So, Sophie, our, uh, our last question here. What about redundancy payments? The calculation of a week's pay for redundancy purposes is based on sections 221 to 224 of the Employment Rights Act. For salaried staff, this is based on what the employee would have earned if the employee works throughout his normal working week. So, this would be the pre-furlough pay, unless any contractual variation to salary is permanent. For variable hours workers, it's based on the average over the last 12 weeks. So, if in any week nothing's paid, you go back to a period when something was paid. This could therefore potentially be based on furlough pay, at least in part, depending on how many weeks the employee was on furlough. It's worth noting that on termination, pay in lieu of any accrued untaken holiday will also be due, or if more holiday than that which is accrued has been taken, a deduction would need to be made. Thank you, Amelia and Sophie. That now concludes our third podcast in this series. If you found it helpful, you may be interested in our next podcast in which we'll be discussing the problems and potential discrimination pinch points that the furlough scheme has presented and will be recorded and published on our website in the coming weeks. In the meantime, again, huge thanks to Amelia and Sophie for their clear and concise responses today. I hope the next phase of furlough is helpful to your business. Please do not hesitate to contact either myself, Amelia or Sophie directly if you have any questions. Thank you. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.